Read with me. I'm just going to read the whole text, and then we're going to... That's a lot of words. Let's read it anyways. Here's what it says. Jesus, continuing his message, says this in his Ken Graves voice. He says this. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men. He gives this illustration. Be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they will open to him immediately. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. We're going to talk about verse 37. It's profound. Verse 38, though, says this, and if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants but, verse 39, know this, that if the master of the house, new illustration, new analogy, but if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, well, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 34, therefore, verse 40, I should say, therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Oh, Peter, verse 41, then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all the people? <laughs> I don't even know what he was thinking. He asks at this point, hey, Jesus, just who are you talking to? <laughs> you know? Were you that guy in class, you know, high school? You're like, I can't believe the teacher's still talking. Teacher, can you start over? Like, are you talking to me or them? And I, I really don't know. Is Peter, what's he saying here? Who are you talking? Are you talking to the 12? Be ready. Be watching. Be waiting. The servants, the master's coming. Are you talking to us? Or are you talking to them? Us, uh, uh, you know, just, but I'm actually glad he asked this question. And Jesus could have given a very simple, straightforward answer. I'm talking to everybody, Peter. Put your hat on, bro. Like, get together. But instead, Jesus continues the teaching, gives more analogies, more illustrations. I love the way Jesus would break down deep, real concepts to simple-minded farmers and Galileans and people like you and me. Oh, oh, that makes sense. I got it. Verse 42, he continues. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Who, who's the master? Or who, sorry, who's the steward? Who's the servant? Who am I talking about, Peter? Verse 43. It's so generic. It's so open-ended. It's so for everybody. It's not just for Peter. not just for the other 11. Not just for those guys. Listen, listen. It's for anybody who would consider themselves a servant or a steward over the things of God. Someone who would consider themselves one who serves the king. This is for anybody who wants to be faithful. Anybody who wants to have an eye tuned up to heaven and an eye to the plow on earth. This is for any, it's not just you, Pete. It's not just them. It's to any man, any woman, anywhere, anytime, all the time that would say, take my life, Lord. Use me. Make, me. make me faithful. Make me, Lord, one of those stewards. You guys know what a steward is, right? A steward is somebody who takes care of other people's resources or even maybe your own resources that you realize aren't just your own. They're God's, and you steward them for his glory, for the benefit of others, where you leverage your greatness, your wealth, your success, not just for your own glory, but for the good of others. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm talking to anybody who would do that. Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, that is being faithful. Verse 44, truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Whoa. Verse 45, but if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants 
and to eat and drink and be drunk. Well, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him. You ever been at work and your boss shows up? Or maybe you're a teenager at home just doing teenage things. And your parents show up. You know. He says in verse 46, he will return when he's not looking for him right there in the middle. And at that hour when he's not aware, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will, listen, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed to him, they will ask the more. Again, Jesus here is preparing his followers for his soon departure. This sermon actually began, I'm going to read to you verse 1 out of chapter 12. It says this, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, and then he went into this teaching. Now just imagine the setting. So many people trampling one another, and Jesus, just months before he would die and leave them in charge, says this is kind of important. He begins to give a litany of teachings and contrasts and parables and illustrations and principles for them to do well. In order that they wouldn't be, well, what do we do now? Where did Jesus go? Wouldn't it be so fun if Jesus were just in charge on earth, going right in front of you, telling you what to do, what not to do? Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, he's done that through this book. They had him in the flesh for three years. And he looks around and says, guys, I'm leaving. They're like, I don't think that's a good idea. Have you seen what we do when you're not here? You know, it's a bad idea for you. And he says, no, if I go, here's a couple things. I'm going to give you my word. And my word will guide you like a lamp, like a light. And I'm also going to give you my Holy Spirit who will be with you everywhere you go, even to the end of the age. He'll be with you. I'll be with you. And so Jesus, knowing that, though, gives them instructions that we might live our lives and do what we do. We call it basic training, right, for those who are living on earth in his absence while trying to stay heavenly focused. And let me just ask you a question right now. How many of you guys are living on earth right now with uh, an earthly government and earthly goals and earthly value systems and earthly rules? Raise your hand if you're living on earth with all that right now. Yeah, you're thinking, that may be a trick question. You know, yeah, you're all here. Earthly system, this, we're all here, but how many of you right now are simultaneously, right now, living on earth with heavenly goals and heavenly values and heavenly rules and a heavenly government? Okay? Okay? Half of you. That's okay. That's okay. We'll get there. The rest of you will repent, you know? <laughs> so, so what's going on? We're here on earth, but we're also living for heaven while on earth. And this is what's known as this, this already, not yet, tension. As Christians, this is what we do. We're already saved. We're already guaranteed. We're already sanctified. The Bible says we're already seated with him in heavenly places. Crazy stuff. But it's not yet transpired completely. It's not yet seen in its fulfillment. It's already, it's a done deal. I'm guaranteed I'm going to heaven. But it doesn't feel like it today. You know, I got stuff to do. And Jesus says, I know it's the already not yet reality. Matter of fact, I'm going to teach you guys a fancy theological uh, doctrine. You'll forget. It's okay. And uh, I'll just, it's two words, ten syllables, and uh, it's uh, inaugurated eschatology. Everyone say it. That's ten syllables in two words. That's pretty good. You're playing Scrabble. You know what I mean? Like, that's a good one. Like, inaugurated eschatology. And what it means is that inauguration is the beginning of a reign, the beginning of something. And eschatology is, is the study of the end times. And what we're living in today and what they were living in then is the inaugurated eschatology. That is the beginning of the end. 
And for the last 2,000 years, even for the next 20 minutes, and for the next two hours, and the next 20 days, and the next until Jesus returns, is the inaugurated end. It's the beginning of the end. It's where you and I find ourselves, most of us hoping to live for a full life, 80 years, 90, whatever the case, I'm hoping to get there. But in reality, it's still the end times. And people always want to know, do you think it's the end times, Pastor? Do you think it's the end? I do. It's been the end times for a long time. Since, since Jesus died and rose from the dead, the end times began. Now, some of you would question this as, well, that's not very cool, you know. How long is this going to go? And Jesus even said in this particular parable, if the master returns in the second watch, or even the third watch, implying that it's not going to be on your timeline, that it's not going to be as quick as you want, and there's part of me that wants the Lord to return tomorrow. Can I get an amen? And there's part of me that doesn't want the Lord to return tomorrow. Because there's more to be done. There's things I want to see still. There's things I want to enjoy. I want to see things. I want to see, there's still people I'm praying for. Lord, not yet. I get, they're not, on the, they're not on, on the boat yet. And yet the Lord knows the signs and the seasons and the times of his coming. And yet he asks us to live every day in the tension of, could be today. It could be right now. This is his command. Live in the tension of my soon return because it will change everything for you in the decisions you make, in the sleep you get, in the experiences you pursue. And again, that fancy theological doctrine, inaugurated eschatology. And if you can memorize Starbucks drinks, okay, and how to order those, you can memorize uh, inaugurated eschatology and just consider that. Don't order it at Starbucks, though. They won't get it. They won't get it. And so what Jesus does in chapter 12 of Luke, what we've been studying, is he gives a series of teachings that we would do well on earth, that we would have the instructions. That, as a matter of fact, let me just use the word that's not popular, but it, 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 it can be redeemed, that we would have the right attitude okay, toward earth from a biblical perspective. How many of you guys have attitudes? Look around. Attitude. Wouldn't it be awesome if you had a heavenly attitude? A heavenly, the Bible says be heavenly minded. Okay? Somebody a long time ago said you need to be heavenly minded before you can actually be earthly good. Somebody wrongly said you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I don't think that's possible. I think the more heavenly minded you are, okay, while engaged on earth doing things, but if you know that you know that you know you're good to go, oh, man, you have something to offer people. You have joy unspeakable, okay? Life abundant to offer. An anchor for your soul in the midst of the chaos of life. Most people think you're crazy. Jesus was killed for being crazy. Cool thing I like about Jesus is he said crazy things, got him killed. All the apostles got killed for saying crazy things. They weren't accepted. When you think about Jesus, though, when he died and was killed, all right, we killed the crazy guy. Sweet. What's next? He came back to life. You know, it's like, he came back to life? Oh, man, maybe he's not so crazy after all. Like, that's the whole deal. The resurrection of Jesus is why you and I can be crazy. Because if you really zoom out and think about what we believe, it's cray-cray. It's crazy town. Until you start taking the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, the men and women that gave their blood, they're the first century eyewitnesses that saw him and said, I just saw him. If you say that again, we're going to kill you. I, I, I saw him. You know, I saw him. I can't not, I can't, I'm not lying. We're all going to die. It's okay. And then for centuries, millenniums, people have had their lives changed based on that crazy truth. 
And you and I get that opportunity today. It's our turn now, 2018. Every day is a challenge. Every day is an obstacle. And so Jesus here, knowing that we would be living life in a governmental system on earth, but also heavenly-minded. You gotta balance your budget with a heavenly mindset. You gotta pay your bills. You gotta talk to the doctor. Live by your neighbor. Do what you need to do with the heavenly mindset because life is nuts. There's potholes and pitfalls and troubles everywhere. And he gives us his word, the B-I-B-L-E. You guys know what it stands for, right? You've heard that before. The basic instructions before leaving earth. Like this is just, this is what we look to in order that we would know what to do and how to do it, what not to do. And Jesus, two weeks ago, we studied it out. We've been breaking this sermon up. He taught on covetousness. He said, guys, while you're on earth, careful of covetousness. Beware and take heed. Two warnings. Don't want more of what you already have enough of. Why not? Because it won't give you what you're really looking for. It's a fool's errand. It's like bubbles and smoke screens. If you're not satisfied with what you already have, you'll never be satisfied with whatever you get. So be satisfied with whatever you have. And he taught on that. Don't covet. Don't do that. And then he switched pendulums, went to the other side. And we learned this last week. He says, also, don't covet wanting more, but don't worry about having less. Don't worry about what you have. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. And he gave that strong exhortation to not worry about not having enough and not being enough. He said, don't, 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 don't do that. That'll mess with you. Cortisol, overload, stress, and anxiety. Stop all that. Okay, well, what do I do then? And today's exhortation is more positive. If you're going to break down this teaching into three parts, this would be where Jesus says, don't covet and want more, and don't worry about having less. What I want you to do, though, what I want you to do, I want you to focus on my return every single day. I want you to hope for my return. I want you to long for heaven. I want you to be heavenly minded while on earth. That's how you're going to avoid covetousness. That's how you're going to avoid worry and stress is by being focused on and wanting me to return. And I'll be honest, wanting Jesus to return is the rightest thing you'll ever do. Okay, I don't know if rightest thing is the right grammar, but you understand me. You guys, you feel me, you feel me. It's the wanting Jesus to return. Hoping in his return is the rightest thing you'll ever do. But I'm going to be honest with you, it's not the easiest thing you'll ever do. Even my wife and I were talking about this last night, how there has been seasons in our own life where we've been looking for the rapture and studying the signs and the times and been more excited in our short little lives of his return. And then there's this season where you're like, well, I know he's going to return, but not till after summer, I hope, you know, or whatever, or you just kind of forget. And so Jesus, knowing that, says, guys, don't get coveting, don't get worrying, but instead hope in my return every single day. And he gives like three or four or five different illustrations in order that we would be able to filter through our mind and argue ourselves back into that hope, because you're going to argue yourself out of it. Well, he hasn't returned in a week. You want me to wait two weeks? You know, it's like, well, let's just talk. Let's talk about stewardship. And let's talk about a master returning. And let's talk about joy. Let's talk about these things in order that you would know. And let me just give you a few thoughts before we get into the text and rip right through it. Because wanting Jesus to return and hoping in it is the right thing. But waiting for Jesus isn't the easiest thing. First John, though, 3, 3. You can commit it to memory. One of the last books that John ever wrote. I'll read it to you. First John 3, 2 and 3. He says this. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. He's old. He's exhorting people. Everyone else is dead, by the way. They've all been killed. He says, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that's the return, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Listen, here's the point. And everyone who has this hope in him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. If you're going to learn this inaugurated eschatology well, John says this in 1 John 3, 2 verses 3. If you're hoping for his return, which is what he exhorts us to do every single day, it could be today. It could be today. So I'm going to do what I do today with that in mind. John says, you will purify yourself. You'll have a pure motive. You'll have a pure intention, a pure application, a pure understanding. Your life will just be different. If you think Jesus could come back today, as a matter of fact, if I told you he's coming back tonight, would that change anything you do today? Like, would you still go to the carnival later today? You know what I'm saying? Or would you go to the carnival with a different mindset and buy tickets for everyone if you knew he was coming today? The Bible says that it will purify your life. And the Christian who is constantly living in that tension of the return of Jesus has a, what I would say, a real advantage, okay? Because they're constantly hoping in the return of the king. Maybe you're pessimistic or snarky or cynical here because your hope has been dashed. It's not the kind of hope you have when the Blazers make the playoffs, okay? And they can't even win a single game. Like, that's a different kind of hope. I hope the Blazers do good. No, that's, that's, a, that's really an unfounded hope, okay? Don't put your hope in the Blazers, okay? Don't do it. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about. Let me give you the definition of hope. Commit this to memory. The definition of hope is very, it's synonymous with faith. Okay? Faith is forgetting all I trust him. I just, it's, it's, it's a done deal no matter what I see. Done. Hope is the const, or the, what is it? Confident expectation of coming good. It's the confident expectation of coming good. I know this is going to happen. I know he's going to return eventually. It's not something I'm banking on or betting on. It's something I am investing my entire life on. And you can take that everywhere you go, and it purifies you. And if you believe that Jesus could return at any time, and you believe that, you won't get caught up in foolish things, and you won't find yourself going down those darkened roads. Because, hey, what if the Lord returned right now? It'll keep you where you need to be. Now look at Luke 12, and I want you to understand this with me. Jesus here, is, this whole message is very repetitive. As a matter of fact, I went to bed last night. I was like, Lord, this is the same message in verses 35 and 36 and 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43. Oh, and I, but I want you to come. eschatology Christian here, you're going to be focused on his return. Here's how he starts this teaching. Look at verse 35. He says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. These are action words, fighting words. Jesus says, this is going to be who I want you to be as Christians. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Lights on, action ready. Now, to gird your waist, this doesn't make sense in our language. If you were to uh, summarize it for our language, you would say, man, roll up your sleeves and get ready to do some work. Be ready in and out of season. Let your girst. Those guys in those days wore robes, right? You guys know this. And in order to do three things, run, fight, or work. Okay? In order to run, fight, or work, what they would do is they would spread their legs out a little bit, and they would grab that robe and kind of cinch it up past their knees, and they would pull it out this way, and then they would wrap it around this way, and they would tie a knot on it. So it's kind of like this little like diaper skirt, okay? Not the most, you know, well, just imagine the diaper skirt. As a matter of fact, if you've seen Romans in kind of some uh, movies or something, the Romans with their robes, how short are a Roman soldier's robes? Okay? To their knees. They were always girded, if you would. They were always ready for battle. Like they invented the miniskirt. Like they're kind of like ready to go. And <laughs> the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they would have to gird their, their loins or gird their robes in order to do those three things to work, okay? to run, or to fight. 
And I think as a Christian, it's just important that the Lord says, hey, I want you guys to be girded about your waist. Be ready, be working, be fighting, and be running. And those are all illustrations that the Bible uses to describe our journey in Jesus. And I think all too often, one of the subtle attacks from the enemy on my life is to forget that I'm in a battle. You don't even need to raise your hand, but how many of you guys just forget that there's a, there's a good, and there's a bad, there's a win, there's a loss, there's a task, and there's an objective? Every day, you just forget that you're in a battle. You just forget, and the devil would love for you to back off and to just kind of let that robe down in your Christianity. I'm just going to relax. I'm not going to press in. I'm going to take my lamp and just kind of let it grow dark. And you might not, like me, you might not get caught up in weird, crazy stuff, like, whoa, what's he doing? But you might just disengage from working from running or from fighting. And for me, this is, and the devil just tricks me, if you would, and gets me to forget. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say he wants you to stay ready, but he wants you to steward well. I want you to leave the light on. Look at verse 35 again. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Now, in those days, lamps were way more important than our day. As a matter of fact, this morning, I counted all the lights in my lower area in our, in our house, I have 28 lights, okay, in there, 28 lights, and if I want any one of them to turn on, you know, light switches everywhere, clap on, we don't have a clap on, but I got kids, kids are the same thing, turn that light on, kid, you know, and all, you know, and so for us, it's like, keep the lights on, what's the big deal, Tom Bodet, Motel 6, we'll keep the light on, you know, in those days, can you imagine if you had no lamp, like no light, no flame, no fire at all, like you would be in trouble, You'd be, you wake up in the middle of the night, no flame. And so if you were to go to bed at night, you would leave a lamp on to be ready at any time, to light the other lamps, to light the fire. It was very precious. In that day, they didn't have electricity like we do. And the implication is I want you to be ready at all times with the light. I don't want you to grow dark in your journey with Jesus. And I like how he says kind of this contrast. I want you to be ready to fight, gird up your waist. But I also want you to have the light on. And only some of you will really understand this or take it seriously, but the Bible calls itself a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And if you really want to fight well, if you really want to remember that you're in a battle, it's going to come from time spent in the light, which is the Word of God. And the more time you spend in the light, okay, the more ready you will be to gird up your waist and fight right. Just the other day, I was waking up and went outside. I think the sun was out for that one second. Did you guys see that? It was amazing. Amazing. So I, got, I sat down in front of the sun. I opened up my Bible, and I opened up to 1 Peter. The Lord had been telling me, read 1 Peter for about the past five days, seven days, and I hadn't had time. So I was like, wow, I'm going to get to 1 Peter. And I read chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, just three verses. And it changed my entire countenance, my entire perspective. It was like the light started to come on all throughout my whole soul. I was like, whoa, it was so fresh. And if you want to be girded, strengthened for the work that God has you doing right now, whatever work it is, or maybe you're more of a man and you don't look at his work, but it's a battle. You're at, you're at war right now with things. Or maybe you're an athlete and you look at your Christian journey as a race. I'm just trying to stay faithful with this pace. Jesus says, let your lights be on too, okay? Spend time in his word. Get into First Peter. Get into the Psalms and the Proverbs. Read the book, First and Second Timothy. Read these pastoral exhortation books. Titus, read the books, Thessalonians, and hear what the Lord has for you because the Lord wants you to be in the light because you guys don't know what Satan has next for you. You don't know what his plan is, and you need to realize that you are in a battle. Okay, so he says, put your waist girded for the fight and your lights on. Look at verse 36. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, 
that when he comes and knocks, that they may open the door immediately. Be like those at the wedding. Again, we don't understand how this would look in a Jewish custom, but in Jewish customs, weddings would last days and weeks, and the bride and groom would get married and leave, but the wedding party would continue, party and having a great time. And at one time, unannounced, the bride and groom would come home and knock on the door or come back, and he says, I want you guys just to be ready at all times. Like, you think it's going to be Tuesday or Wednesday? Like, well, you know, it's like all the time. Just be ready and be ready for my return and open the door. And Jesus is using this as an illustration for those who would have that constant hope of his return. And we love reading the newspaper and we love studying, you know, China and Russia and, you know, all the, the wars and the people. We're going to get into the book of Revelation in 17 years when we're done with the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look at the end times and kind of some of those fulfillments that are happening. Did you know that every single Christian from the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ, has believed that Jesus would return in their day. Every single, okay? So in the year 100 AD, he's coming back. We've got to get ready right now. Girded waist, lamps burning. Let's get ready. And they die. And the next generation, he's coming. He's coming. And they die. And they, now it's our turn. And we read the newspaper in South Korea and the Russia. And, all, and that is the accurate Part, or should I say the accurate position for the Christian to believe is that he's returning because of the purity that it puts into your life. Because of, listen, not just the purity, but the peace that guards your heart when you know that he is returning. But he tells these guys, be ready to open the door. And he's using a number of illustrations to underscore and illustrate that he will return. Last night, my kids were in the den playing Minecraft. And my wife was editing some photos. She did some prom shoots last night and took some photos. And, and I was studying in the kitchen. Someone rang the doorbell. They knocked on the door. You know, I was like, who's that? Saturday night, you know. And knocking on the door. I'm studying this whole knock on the door thing. So I'm halfway expecting Jesus to be there. You know, I was like, I'll go with it, you know. And so I open up the door, and it's this guy wearing, like, a suit and tie, this young man. And he gives me a few, like, cheesy, you know, oh, the king of the house. Where's your crown, bro? You know, I was like, what, dude? You know, and, and he's like, well, I'm giving away products. And he handed me a bunch of Febreze, like, four-pack of Febreze. Did this guy come to your house last night? Anybody come to you? He came to your house too, Brad? Okay. So he, he, he tries to give me this Febreze, and I look at him. I'm busy. I'm like, dude. I looked at the Febreze, and I almost grabbed it, but I knew it was a trick. Once you grab it, then you, he'll never take it back. You know, I was like, ah. Oh. And, and I just, I said, look, dude. Uh, it's, today's not the day. I'm busy. You got to go. Sorry, not right now. You know, I just kicked him out of there, dude. I don't know why I told that story, but he's, he's bummed. He bummed, you know. And so anyways, Jesus says, when I'm knocking the door, be ready to open. I'm going to be there, you know. Look at verse 36 again. Maybe I won't tell that story at the second service, but uh, <laughs> just want you guys to know what I go, th- what I go through, you know. <sighs> Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. I need you guys to hear this. Jesus, is, it would be a common illustration. Master comes home from the wedding, right in the middle, everyone's there waiting. They're not surprised. Oh, dude, you came sooner. Oh, we got to get the barbecue going. We weren't ready for you. Sorry about that. Just sit right here. We'll get everything. No, he says, they're ready. And he says, those ones are the ones who are blessed the ones who were watching. And you could take a teaching like this, and you could go a lot of different directions. Jesus teaching. You could just kind of teach whatever you want. There would be a temptation to think, I need to do more. Okay? And, and maybe the Lord will have you do more. Maybe that's what he has for you. Not, not for everybody, though. Here's what I think the pure, pure foundation of this teaching is underscored in this verse. Blessed are the ones who are found watching. That's it. Waiting wanting their master to return. It doesn't say that they were out doing things for him. We can imply that they were, 
Did you know, let me just use a negative context. Did you know you can actually do a lot of things for Jesus and still not really love him? And legalism and religion. You, you can get real busy. You can go on mission trips. You can be a good giver. You can, you can show up faithful. And you can actually not be interested in Jesus, the return. I, I need to set some of us free. You know what he's really looking for? The bedrock foundation is that you truly just love him. And when you love him, you'll end up doing things. You'll be nice. You'll buy people's groceries. You'll, you'll give. You'll serve. You'll be available. You'll, you'll walk in a purity. But it's not about, oh, man. Oh, have you ever seen that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy? You see that, you know? Come on, man. <laughs> Jesus, you know, look busy. That's not it. Not it at all. You know, Jesus is coming. Smile big. And I just read, I'll read it again. It's right here, verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. I've been meditating on this. Like, well, what do you want from me? Because I just, while you're driving down the road, just think about me. It'll, it'll make you drive better. You won't have road rage. You won't have one-on-one rage or whatever it's called, you know. And if, you, if you're ordering your food and they, they blow the order and it's all wrong and you're hoping for my return, hey, you'll learn to eat something new, you know. It'll just change everything. How? By just wanting the Lord. He says blessed. That word blessed, you guys know this, Bible students, it literally means joy or happiness. And if you're waiting for your happiness to be established in things of this world, eh, things in this world don't happen the way we want all the time. And sometimes I feel guilty that I'm not doing enough for him, and that's not really what he's asking for, do more. What he's asking for is have a bigger heart for me. Last night, before the door knocker came to my house, I was in my backyard and moving around the sprinklers. And I was just contemplating on just the love of God. Do I love God? Of course I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to show up, man. I'm going to gird my waist. And as I was moving my sprinkler around, I just stopped and I looked up. And it was really cool clouds last night, real wispy and beautiful. And I just looked up and I just was, and I began to think about Peter. And I began to think about Abraham. And I began to think about Paul. And I began to think about the Bible and all the men and women who've been faithful and who were there with him. I began to think about, listen, the kingdom of God. And it was the best one minute of my entire day, okay? I had a great day yesterday. In the parade, I didn't fall off my skateboard, you know, sunshine. It was a great, lots of celebration yesterday. Best part of the day, though, was truly waiting and wanting and watching for my Savior. I wasn't even doing anything, okay? Nothing, it was just me and him. If you want to have joy, instant joy in your life at any given time, thank you, Lord, that you know, what, you know what's going on. You know the timing. This is all, it's okay. Even in life, if things aren't okay. And you can have that peace. He says, who are the blessed ones? It's the ones who are watching. He goes on to say something crazy in verse 37. Assuredly, a strong word, I say to you that he, that is the groom, will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. What is going on here? When the master returns in this illustration and sees his servants waiting for him, he's going he's to reverse the roles. He's going to show up and say, really? You were just waiting for me the whole time while I was out doing my stuff. I came home and you're ready? Have a seat, everyone. I'd like to cook for you now. I'd like to serve you now. And he says, assuredly, because I think there's some pushback here and we don't really believe this, that Jesus really wants to serve you and serve me. Yet we see this in the scriptures in John 13. He sat down and washed the disciples' feet. In John 21, he's the one making fish and chips there on the beach for the disciples, for Peter, you know, and serving them. I just wonder if this would help some of you to realize, you know who's going to meet my needs the best 
is not this world. Don't raise your hand, but we love to be served, don't we? We love to be special, love to be catered, love to be taken care of. And yet some of us go looking for that love in all the wrong places. And we look for being served and valued and esteemed. And Jesus says, if you're waiting for me, I will esteem you. Whoa. If you're waiting for me, watching for me, I will serve you. It's crazy because in our smallness, it's almost like, I don't want, I want my neighbors to love me, but I don't know if I want that. Deal with it. Jesus says it right here. And I think it will help you to then not look for service and validation in all of the wrong places. Jesus says, I'll serve you. Look at verse 38. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. I'm really thankful for Jesus adding verse 38. Because you think Jesus knew like roughly when his return would be? He's telling those guys, I want you to wait for my return. And like deep within, he's like, it'll be thousands of years. You know, he knows. He's like, so if it doesn't happen right when you think, like just, you know, second watch, keep waiting. Third watch, uh uh-oh, just keep waiting. The lifestyle. Trust me. Trust me. Again, Peter, who's listening to this sermon, would ask a question, a point-blank question in a minute. Peter, in his epistle, his second epistle, right around chapter 3, would address this topic of his return. And Peter would say this in chapter 3. He would say, some people are going to mock the return of Jesus, this idea. But here's the deal. God is not slack concerning his promises. He's not like forgetful or not doing it. But instead, he is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. See, Peter understood, just like you do, I want the Lord to come back right now. But I also don't want the Lord to come back until more people get saved, more things get right. Now, again, those decisions are way above my pay grade, way above our wisdom. And so we submit to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, thy will be done. First watch, second watch, third watch, fourth watch. We, and all kinds of people are like, when's he going to come back? Anytime. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back tonight. And if he doesn't come back tonight or tomorrow, maybe Tuesday, you know, any day. And he tells us in verse 38, don't trip if it's not according to your time or your plan. Now, again, I just... For some of you crusty Christians, or maybe even some of you new Christians, this idea of the expectation of coming good, the return of the king, is to be our predominant heartbeat. Because when that heart is beating, everything else will function out of that. Those who have the hope of his return will purify themselves, and people will mock you. Like George said, they'll think you're crazy. And yet we're living for an audience of one. And maybe their eyes were glassing over because he doesn't stop talking about this. He gives like three or four more illustrations. He talks about a thief breaking in, like the whole wedding idea. Maybe that didn't get you. Let's talk about some thieves. And well, that didn't get you. Let's talk about the guy that, you know, gets cut in half and his portion given to others. You know, let's talk, he gets crazy towards the end there and many stripes and beatings. And so he continues to get their attention. Verse 39, he says this, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, holy, total different illustration, Well, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, therefore, because of that, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Jesus says to these guys, just like a man or woman would protect their house with lock and key. I want you to lock up your mind to this idea. I want you to be ready for an unexpected return. Just, just like you guys lock your house. How many of you guys lock your house at night? Raise your hand if you lock your house at night. I'm looking to see who doesn't. Just in case, you know, I need to know. Make sure you guys are okay. And 
and I lock my doors, you guys lock your doors, and what if I told you this, though? What if I told you, hey, here's the deal, someone's going to break into your house? And you, the first thing you would say if you're wise is when. What if I said it's sometime in the next 10 years? And if you just knew, okay, in the next 10 years, your house is going to, someone's going to attempt to break into your home in the next 10 years. Would you ever during that 10-year period just, maybe today's probably not the day, I'll leave everything open, you know, today's, you would lock the door every single night for 10 years, not knowing which day in that 10 years was that day. As a matter of fact, you all, most, I lock my doors, my cars, I lock my, my door to my house, I lock my garage door, the windows, it's all locked down. Let me ask another question. How many of you guys lock your doors and a thief has tried to break into your house and you don't know it because your doors were locked and they got away? They just tried the door and it was locked. Anybody? Okay, a couple of you do know because you have security cameras, okay? Most of you, though, don't, don't know. You're like, I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe I was ready. Maybe somebody tried the door. Oh, that's locked. Moving on to the neighbors. You know, that house is locked. You don't know, but you took the precaution in order that you would be ready upon that day. And I'll tell you what Jesus says. I want you to be ready all the time, locking your doors to your mind, knowing, verse 39 again, but know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 40 says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And one of the best ways Jesus is helping us to overcome hypocrisy, which he covered in the first couple chapters or first couple verses of chapter 12, and covetousness and worrying is to have a constant hope in his return. Look at verse 41. Peter asked this question. When Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all the people? Because Jesus' answer is just, you know, he keeps steamrolling, just keeps teaching. And I just wonder if Peter's asking a dumb question. I don't know. But I wonder if Peter had kind of like a, hey, you're talking to the bozos behind us, right? You know, like, of course we're hoping. Like, are you talking to us or who are you talking to? And that would be a good question for you to ask for yourself. Lord, are you talking to me? I asked that question when I was driving here this morning. Lord, are you, how's this apply to me? I'm excited to teach it at all three services. But I, had, but I can't really lock your doors for you. Okay? I can't do that, but how, how does this apply to you, this teaching? What does the Lord have for your life? And what if Jesus would have given a different answer, but instead he continues, verse 42, who then is that faithful and wise steward? Who am I talking to? Whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Verse 43 describes that person. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Now, again, this blessing is twofold. He says, you want to know who I'm talking about? Is the person who's waiting for my return when I return. That's the blessed one. And I think there's two forms of blessing. Number one, it's the fact that when he shows up, he's going to serve you. You're, you're ready. You're received. That, that's a blessing. Did you know that while you wait, though, for the Lord, while you believe that he's coming, while you believe that on an earthly governmental system, there's also a heavenly governmental system that's actually in control. Did you know that every single day you live that way, you're blessed? Let me use the illustration of a thief into your house again. If you lock the door of your house and a thief comes and tries to open it up and it does not succeed, are you blessed or not? You're blessed. That was a good day. But let's say the thief doesn't show up and your house is locked anyways. You know what happens? You sleep so good. You just sleep good because your house is secure. And the Lord says, even if I don't show up today, but you live like I was going to show up today, your day was great. 
He had a good day. Watering the lawn, looking up at the cloud. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Even though it wasn't the day, that day was redeemed and purified. And I don't want us to live in fear. Oh, today's the day. No, no, be blessed. He says that again in verse 43. Blessed or happy is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Verse 44, truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Whoa. Jesus goes next level. Not only will you be blessed, not taken off guard, not only will you live with peace, but you'll be rewarded. Not just served, as he said. He's using a different illustration now. You'll be put in charge of all sorts of things. And I don't think about this too often. I think we should think about it more often. Uh, how many of you guys are excited to go to heaven? Just like straight up, you're going to be there? Like, just, I'm just stoked to get in, you know, get my hand stamped. Like, I'm in, you know. Ah, you know. Just, is this real? That's, that's kind of how it's going to work. The real way it's going to work, though, is there's going to be rewards given, and there's going to be opportunities to continue to serve the king. There's going to be stewardship, ownership. There's, there's going to be more to do. And I, I wonder, what are you going to be doing in heaven? Simple question. Probably picking up dog droppings, you know, like straightening things up, probably, you know. What are you going to, or, or, if you've been faithful, how, what does your faithfulness look like down here? I just, I just, man, my life stinks. I haven't been perfect. I don't do it. I don't, but I love Jesus. I really do. Oh, I think that's enough. I think that will spur then other things. But if you just love Jesus, if you're just looking for his return, blessed is that one who's waiting and watching. He's going to be put over many things. And you should trip out from time to time about what you're going to be doing in heaven. What do you got for me, Lord? I just love you over the things of this world. And if you're here at the 9 a.m. service today, I, I, I know that something in you is, yeah, I, I am over this world. This world's crazy. Every time I go after something, I think this is going to be it. It's not it. Every time I worry about not having enough, the Lord provides. I think it's the Lord. The Lord, the Lord is so good. He says, that's the one who I want you to be. Verse 45, but if that servant says in his heart, "Uh uh-oh, my master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and on an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. The opposite of what Jesus is teaching here is to get snarky, cynical, sarcastic, impatient, hard-hearted, thin-skinned to the things of the Lord. You don't need to raise your hands, but, but, but do you struggle with you know, some sarcasm and cynicism? Jesus says this, the way to eradicate that is just to hope in my return, to just hope. That's what I'm hoping for. It'll keep your heart soft. It'll purify you. He gives two things that will be indicative to the heart that has gone weird toward number one, there'll be brutality and beating the men, servants, and the maids. I'll tell you what, you can see this in your own life. If you're not concerned, you're a Christian, good job, but you're not really concerned about the things of God, you'll be more critical towards other people, just unnecessarily, other denominations, other Christians, just be critical, you'll be critical towards people, justified in your own mind, and not just critical, he says here, but you'll start to eat and drink and then take it too far and get drunk. You'll start to live for the pleasures of this world. This is kind of like, whoa, I think this is a lot of people in 2018. Christians have become a little bit, in my opinion, just kind of observing from a distance, even my own heart when I look in the mirror, hard-hearted, cynical, sarcastic, lethargic, and lazy, but also living the pleasures of this world just a little bit too much. He says, careful, just careful. How am I going to eradicate that? Just fall more in love with me. You don't need to do more, okay? Just maybe look up a little more. 
And I, I promise you, it'll be the best one minute or the best hour or the best part of your day when you truly look to the Lord and hope for his return. I promise you, it'll be better than anything you're pursuing down here right now apart from his kingdom. Verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do accordingly to his will will be beaten with many stripes. He says the guy that knows what to do and doesn't do it, it's going to be a massive beating. Many stripes. He goes on to say in the next verse, verse 48, but he who didn't know, yet he committed things deserving of stripes, well, he shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Let me just say this about this, these two verses. He gets real serious, and the next couple portions of Scripture are going to be equally serious. We'll study those in the next couple weeks. This is serious. Jesus says, if you know what to do and don't do it, you're going to be held accountable. I mean, is that not true? Would we all agree? He says to the person who doesn't know what to do but still does things you shouldn't have done, they're going to be held accountable as well. Less stripes, but nonetheless. And if you ever wonder if hell's going to stink, let me just tell you, it's going to stink. You don't want to do it. And if you know what to do now, he's saying, just live for my kingdom, not your own. Live for the hope of my return, not for the things that you hope to get out of coveting or worrying or your own lifestyle choices. Live for my kingdom. By the way, when it says there'll be many stripes given, many beatings, you guys ever beat yourself up for doing stupid stuff? Anybody ever do that? I think that that's part of the deal here, is that when you know what to do and don't do it, you know, it's just you beat yourself up. Like, ah, he says, don't do that. If you know what to do, open my return. Stay strong. Stay committed. Reminds me of that famed Japanese warrior, Hiro Onoda. Remember him? He was the islands of the Philippines in the World War II, 1944. He was a uh, reconnaissance guy, guy, and as he was this island uh, at the tail end of World War II, you guys who maybe know history know that that is exactly when World War II ended, and his troops were captured and they surrendered, but not Hiro. Hiro hid. That was his orders to hide until he got what he needed and to go into guerrilla warfare. He was discovered in 1974. 30 years later, on the same Filipino island, hiding with his little soldier suit on and all his stuff, and he had been hiding and gathering information for 30 years, not knowing that the war was over. When finally he was coerced, they said, hey, the war's over, bro, like, internet, and, you know, never, or whatever, May 74, they didn't have internet yet, you know, we got, I don't know what we got, it's different, but it's, we're, we're having fun now, everything's, everything's good. And yet his stick-to-itiveness to the plan Matter of fact, those Japanese warriors, they found more since then. A couple guys were hiding for 60 years, okay? 60 years in the jungle, just these two guys, because that was their orders. Matter of fact, he has a quote, a hiro, uh, Onoda, I think that's how you say it, because when he found out the war was over, he said, oh, no, duh, you know, I think, I think that's what he said, but uh, could be wrong. But his, his quote when being interviewed by CNN was, these are my orders. I was told that I was okay to die, but to gather information until I did. <laughs> he wasn't very good at his job, obviously, you know, <laughs> gathering the wrong information. Here's my point. My point is this. I'm of the worship team come up right now, is that we would have that stick to today. Make that decision. I'm just going to live with an expectation of coming good. Two things it will do for you. When it does happen, if it does happen, if it does. Someone said Maranatha earlier. Maranatha means, come Lord. The coming of the Lord. Lord, come. 
If it does happen and you're hoping in his return, good on you. Good job. It's the rightest thing you could do. Not the easiest thing, but the rightest thing. And if he doesn't return while you're waiting for his return, that, this is, your life will be legit. You'll be so stoked, so focused. Everything you do can be redeemed. You can go out of here and live exactly the lives you've been living, but with the right mindset. I'm just waiting for the Lord to return. It's going to happen. The Lord, it does, it purifies your heart. It gives you a heavenly mindset on an earthly task. You guys are on your own island, if you would, with your own orders to stay faithful to what the Lord has for you. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare to respond to his faithfulness. You guys know that God has been faithful to you through his death, burial, and resurrection. What he has given to you is more faithful than what you could ever offer to him. And we respond to his faithfulness, Lord. So in Jesus' name now, as we prepare to come to the table this morning and celebrate what you've done for us, we do so with thanksgiving. The Lord, you, in the midst of all odds and against all odds, did what God had sent you to do to die for the sins of the world. That we could be forgiven. That today there, hasn't be, there doesn't need to be one person here that leaves that's not forgiven. That you can have all of your sins taken care of. And then live with that expectation that your king will return. If you're here today and you need your sins forgiven, would you just raise your hand right now? If you're unsure of that and you need the Lord to wipe those away, he says that he will remove them as far as the east is from the west. Raise your hand up right now. If you're struggling with sin, you need forgiveness right now, Lord. You see these hands. Take care of your people today in Jesus' name. You can put your hands down. And Lord, as we prepare to come to the table, we do so examining ourselves and proclaiming your death until you return. And we ask, Lord, you would give us that heart, that mindset of your kingdom that is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.